So good evening everyone. I'm Sally Shuttleworth and I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the College to St Anne's and the new series of Weidenfeld Lectures in European Comparative Literature. The professorship was founded in 1994 through the generosity of Lord Weidenfeld, who unfortunately cannot be with us tonight. It's hosted a wonderful set of visiting professors from George Steiner on the start to Amos Oz and Bernard Schlink and most recently Alice Smith whose magnificent lectures are now available in book form in Artful, which was published last year by um, Hamish Hamilton at Penguin. Now tonight, I am delighted to welcome Don Patterson, who's one of the UK's most distinguished poets. His collections range from nil-nil in 1993 to rain in 2009, with an excellent selected poems appearing last year. He's been much garlanded with prizes, winning, for example, the Whitbed Poetry Prize and the T.S. Eliot Prize twice. And in 2010, he received the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry. On the poster for this event, Don is described boldly as a poet. The original mock-up had poet, writer, musician, but in a fit of cowardice, I shortened it fearful that there might be audience expectations of an all-singing, all-dancing event. Although, to be fair, Alice Smith did break into song last year. Don is a man of many parts, starting his life as a musician, playing in a combination of jazz and Celtic folk music. And he's also a writer and editor of note, producing, for example, two collections of aphorisms, as well as his work on reading Shakespeare's sonnets and various edited collections of poetry. He also teaches at St Andrews University and is poetry editor at Picador Macmillan. One of the reasons the selection committee thought he would be perfect for the Weidenfeld chair is the deep engagement in his work with European literature. The Eyes of 1999 is a response to the poetry of Antonio Machado and Orpheus of 2006, an engagement with Rilke's sonnets to Orpheus. This latter work has a wonderful afterward appendix in which he explores his own ideas on versioning as opposed to the act of translation, whilst also illuminating the tension between life and death to be found in Rilke and indeed in much of his own work. From his first collection onwards, many of Don's poems are responses to other writers, from Propertius through to Rambo and Cavafy, his poetry, a constant thinking through of other times and cultures. In his book of aphorisms, The Blind Eye, Don notes, when poets are asked their occupation, that is to say, what consumes their energies, they should answer, not writing. The aphorism is multi-layered, as is his poetry. Luckily for us, Don has been writing, I hope, and I'm pleased to say um, that he um, will now offer us the first of his lectures on the domain of the poem. So please welcome Don Patterson. Thanks. I'd just like to thank uh, uh, Sally and uh, uh, Tim Gardham, the principal, for uh, inviting me here. It's a real uh, privilege. Uh, the first thing I should say is this is not a lecture that I intended to start with. Um, uh, it probably uh, advisedly I swapped them around at the end. Um, this, 
The next thing I suspect, I don't know, I'll be able to gauge after this one, maybe a little more technical in nature, but maybe less, I've no idea really. Um, but uh, uh, I thought I should start with something that, that gave some idea where it was coming from. Um, this is a, um, a lecture that I did give uh, uh, once before, so it's not quite a virgin inaugural, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's shorter than the last time, that's, I can tell you that. It's, <laughs> um, I've spent the last year working on uh, poetic meter um, and this is a subject where, despite its being so boring and technical, no one can really agree on anything at all, uh, I've discovered. There are precisely as many magical theories as there are theorists. Uh, and it's about as edifying uh, listening to a bunch of medieval theologians discuss that old chestnut about how many angels dance in the head of a pen. Um, but it's maybe a good time to remind myself that what I love about poetry uh, is its ability to cut through all that stuff and offer... Uh, imaginary solutions uh, to these issues. The angels in pen uh, problem, incidentally, you may know this, was solved around 15 years ago by the American poet Billy Collins. Um, and if I can find it, I'll show you his solution to the whole thing. Uh, he offers an alternative uh, uh, bunch of answers and finally settles on this one. Perhaps the answer is simply one. One female angel dancing alone in her stocking feet small jazz combo working in the background. She sways like a branch in the wind, her beautiful eyes closed, and the tall, thin bassist leans over to glance at his watch because she has been dancing forever. And now it is very late, even for musicians. Now, uh, as brilliant a, a solution as this clearly is, it also tells you that poems are not to be trusted. And I think this is, what I really want to talk about is that, that slippage here. Um, the problem with poetry's hypothesis, of course, is that they are not uh, falsifiable. Uh, but this is art all over, isn't it? Um, it's a bit like Pierre Vancel proving that, you know, the trisection of the angle using a pair of compasses and a ruler is impossible. And then an artist wanders in, takes up a pencil, and executes the, that trisection perfectly and freehand. Um, and while that solves everything, of course it proves nothing. It's a trick. Uh, it's a brilliant, useless one of performance. But it's one that news, nonetheless allows us to glimpse uh, a truth that we might find otherwise impossible to apprehend. And I believe poetry is a truth-telling, uh, but it often gets at the truth at the expense of the facts. Uh, this slipperiness also means that we can get things past the censors, however, that would otherwise never be tolerated. Uh, it can carry a hidden freight, in other words, and the, the surreptitious means by which it might secretly declare love in peacetime are the same by which it might inspire rebellion at a time of political oppression, because it often flies under the radar. Uh, as Thomas Hardy once said, if Galileo had said in verse that the world moved, the Inquisition might have left him well alone. Um, these lectures, I suspect, will most, mostly be culled from a book I have coming out next year called The Domain of the Poem. Uh, I was wondering about the dedication for that book. I should really explain what I'm trying to do here. Uh, and thought of borrowing one from a guy called Mark L. Danielewski in a book that he wrote called The House of Leaves. I don't know if anyone's read that at all. Uh, it's the most terrifying book I've ever read. I never finished it. After six nights of waking up screaming, I decided to abandon the, uh, the, the project. But it has the most wonderful dedication. It just says, this is not for you. Uh, 
and I thought I might do that. Uh, and indeed it wasn't. Um, I think the reason I'm suggesting that you know this next book might not be for you is it was written for me primarily, um, really just an, uh, an attempt to explain something to myself, which is how do you get a plane from one head into another? Um, as well as a point, as uh, you know, uh, I work as an editor, and while I'm not really an academic, I've got to be honest, um, I'm a member of that relatively new uh, and possibly short-lived cohort at this rate, frankly, uh, called Writers Who Work in the Academy. Is that my phone? I'm going to put this on uh, airplane mode right now. Oh, forgive me. There we go. That won't happen again. That's it settling down. Um, so my interest in the subject of poetic composition uh, is really formed by three perspectives. Firstly, the, you know, the first-hand experience of writing this stuff. Uh, my work with other poets in the role of editor and such scholarly and scientific theory you know, uh, as relates to my discipline. Each perspective relates to a separate part of the process. Poets give the poem. Um, editors are concerned with its safe transmission, in a sense. Scholars study the poem as it's received. Uh, the perils of that process, I think, can be summed up rather beautifully by um, a line of Antonio Porsche's. Uh, there it's in a W.S. Merwin translation. I know what I have given you. I do not know what you have received. Uh, my Spanish is dreadful, but that's something like que daro lo sé, que has recibido no lo sé. Um, and I think that kind of describes beautifully the abyss uh, that exists between us all, even in the simplest act of, of human communication, but maybe especially poetry. Um, I want to talk about error mostly uh, in this lecture, and my first error, where this guy's concerned, is his name, which I always assume to be Porchia. Um, I was recently corrected by an Argentinian, apparently they Hispanicized the Italian, and they say Porsche. Um, uh, and as a monoglot, you know, a, a sub-monoglot, this sort of thing happens to me a lot. Uh, and I no longer say rimbod, you know, a rhyme milk with milk, um, but I, I get a lot of stuff wrong. A couple of years back I was talking in St Andrews and I mentioned the, uh, the French poet uh, Robert Dainot. Uh, and as a matter of some urgency, I was taken aside by my old, my old mentor, Douglas Dunn, afterwards, and he said, uh, are you a complete idiot? It's Day's nose. He was from Alsace. You know, as if this was a kind of most obvious point of common knowledge. Uh, you know, that's what I love about St Andrews. It's kind of turned the pedantry to an art form. Um, anyway, this is, uh, uh, as I say, Merwin's translation from uh, a book of Porsches called uh, Voices, Voices, uh, bits of which are so good to have them tattooed on me, just to be frank, and a fact that surprised Merwin when I stripped off in a pub in front of him one time. Um, in my role as publisher, I was sent another translation of Porsche's book recently. Uh, the translator had denounced Merwin as having travestied the oh, uh, Porsche's uh, original. Um, now, obviously, no illustrated man wants to hear that he's wearing an inferior text, so I was curious to, <laughs> as, to, uh, as to what was going on here. And when I looked up this little aphorism, it came out as this. What I've given you, I know. What you've received, I don't know which the translator claims is superior because it's a more accurate echo of the, the Spanish, uh, uh, at least in its syntax. But of course, it's poorer and less idiomatic and rhetorically effective English. Uh, this is when I get excited and you go to sleep. The reason for, the reason for this is 
to do with the way that nuclear stress works in English. Uh, unless there's some kind of over-determining context involved, um, nuclear stress in a phrase tends to land in the last stress vowel of the last content word in each uh, international uh, phrase unit. There's one there. Um, and here it's a rise on given. Uh, I know what I have given you. And then on received. Um, I do not know what you have received. So we go up at the end there. The fact that Merwin has made this already parallel structure heavily metrical, it's, it's almost a trameter, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, means that something else kicks in in English, which is the alternate stress rule, um, which is one of my favourite things in the world. I think I might explain everything, from generative grammar to dancing. Um, alternate stress is basically why humans uh, hear funky rhythms where animals uh, hear so much beat wallpaper. I mean, animals, as you may have noticed, don't dance. When they do, it's just upsetting. Um, but we think that uh, at least uh, um, uh, monkeys and dogs really don't hear, they, when they hear a clock, they hear talk, 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 where we hear tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. Nobody really knows why this is, um, but it's what makes us dance. And the funny thing about uh, alternate stress is it works hierarchically, so it goes up. So after a while, you're hearing tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock, and then eventually tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. So it works in higher and higher units. Um, and after a while, it becomes a kind of international phenomenon. Uh, so what you get when you get two balanced phrases like this, you're going to hear a difference in the way that they're pitched and the, the key that they have. And what happens here is there's a lovely fall in pitch then between given and received. To, to my ear, at least, kind of synesthetically kind of enacts this, this uh, giving and receiving. In the not-so-good translation, um, what I've given you, I know. What you've received, I don't know. Uh, that's the rhetorical con contrast. I know, I don't know. Here's the problem. Readers care about themselves. They don't care about you as a poet at all. You learn that quite early on. They're far more interested in what they're getting or not getting than they are here in the speaker's relative state of ignorance. So Merwin's translation holds their interest because it engages us, whereas the second translator believes he's honoured the words, but he hasn't really honoured the spirit. He probably knew what he had uh, uh, received, but he didn't know what he had to give. Um, this kind of codal incompetence, uh, by which I mean not having the code, the rules of the exchange that would allow uh, uh, signs to be traded and properly understood, then traded again, I think is a hallmark of bad translation uh, and maybe also of bad poetry. Um, so that's essentially what this little talk is about. The ability of the reader really to garble the text, often with the poet's assistance. Uh, the effects of uh, this kind of mediocre translation are maybe more clearly seen when you chain them up in series uh, in what Americans call the game of telephone and what we still call something racist, which I won't indulge. Um, now I'll explain that in a minute. I ran the Porsche quote through the, the Douglas Adams-inspired uh, software program, uh, translation program, Babelfish. I rather through a bit of it called an improbability translator. Um, this translates text into Afrikaans and back into English, into Armenian, back into English, so on, until you get to Yiddish, basically. Um, so it cycles it round and round and round. Now eventually, uh, uh, once you get to Yiddish and back into English, it comes out as, I know I have. <laughs> so this has been translated many, many times. Now the process shrinks text, it's fundamentally subtractive, and what's shed in every cycle is a little more than nuance, but nuance turns into uh, lexical affix, affix turns into word, word tur turns into phrase, and eventually phrase turns into everything, and everything disappears. Um, now, uh, 
I thought I'd slap, um, basically because it's automated and not human, it also sheds any uh, binding semantic context. So it also starts to get surreal quite quick. And this is where the fun starts, really. Um, here's the first eight lines of uh, Sonnet 18. Uh, it runs through the improbability translator. Um, so there's the original at the top, and there's some versions of it underneath. Um, <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Some of it's okay. It, it hardly improves in the original. You know, in, in semantic terms, it's completely discoherent. Uh, but some bits are pretty cool. Uh, at least I think so. There's a bit over here, which is great. Um, uh, click to see the sky. Good fortune. Often the skin was just a waste of an accident with a very brief historical cyclical nature of the person. I won't tell you the poison that reminds me of, but anyway. Um, and also, the last one, this is hot, yes, very quickly, because the story is a summer air, and the step is in heaven, and often sleep in the dim, hiding, and fortunately, it is very hot. You need to change in metabolic disorders. <laughs> um, it's all right. So, uh, now, codal incompetence, which is basically not getting it, uh, is a big problem in any speech act that tries to communicate accurate information. Uh, in poetry, we're not trying to communicate accurate information. Um, and oh, weirdly, when you turn up the incompetence knob, as we have here, uh, it can often just produce more poetry, in a sense. Well, why is this? Well, the reason is this increasingly random garbage still has the feel of the poetic, uh, because we're used to beating poems halfway. Poems are half-said things, full of deliberate allusions that no normal conversation would countenance. Uh, and the poet has held this space open um, for the reader to enter. And what they enter into is an act of co-authorship. The poem exists between uh, both the uh, author and reader. In the course of which, uh, the poem becomes the reader's own. So we need this gap. We need this uh, uh, area of slippage. This is a point of poetry. And it's also why poetry is difficult to understand, as they say. But it wouldn't be a poem if it didn't stimulate our capacity for over-signifying, for over-interpretation, um, which, of course, derives from our evolutionary ad advantageous trick of uh, uh, reading meaning into a universe that, forgive my predilection, has none at all. I, I, don't th I think there's even words of no intrinsicality. But my point is just that poetry readers are primed to read too much in as part of the contract. So any random, unconnected uh, input can send their connective faculty into overdrive, and that's a feeling they can mistake for, uh, and certainly associate with, poetry. The domain of poetry is what you might call a permissive context, unlike the constrained context of other domains like legalese, knitting patterns, physics, you know, where we don't have that kind of freedom of interpretation. Poetry will legitimise misreading, in other words. Um, and that can go either way, that's a, a, a double-edged sword. To give you a, a kind of analogous example, take um, uh, common mishearings of the Beatles lyric, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, um, which I have here. Now, the interesting thing is the reader knows the song is drug-addled uh, and, uh, and surreal and a bit bonkers. Um, Therefore, misreadings will be largely unconstrained when you, when you compare mishearings of things like even country and western songs. Uh, so even just the mishearings of the, the, the title itself are kind of interesting. Um, there's the title, and people have misheard it variously as Lucy knew this guy with diamonds. Lucy and this guy are dying. Lucy's getting high with Linus, which is wonderful. Lucy's in disguise with lions, and my favourite, lick me in the sky with Brian. Uh, all of which 
are not beyond the bounds of possibility. There's another wonderful machine, the famous one in that song, of course, is um, the girl with uh, kaleidoscope eyes, which was picked up as the girl with kaleidoscope eyes. <laughs> but it's a permissive context, is my, is my point here. Now, I've heard uh, several people comment on the poetry of that mad spam cut-up stuff you sometimes get in your email entry. Uh, interesting, this is, this is usually also just a way of smuggling in hidden freight. The same as poetry, not of declared love or the seeds of political foment, uh, but your Viagra or your Xanax advert, you know, your Ponzi scheme, you know, that kind offer from a member of the Nigerian royalty to rest 10 million quid in your bank account for the weekend. Um, uh, here's an example of spam text. Um, I've made it a wee sonnet. And one had to admit that I didn't relish the idea of bringing pals back in the small hours now. But I must say that to me there seems to be something positively fiendish in a man who acted from the best motives. But your ladyship, knowing him better, this is my favourite bit, he had a kind of paternal muscular spasm about the mouth which is capable of being developed. Life became like what the poet Johnny says, one grand sweet song. She made me feel as if I were a memorising freak at the halls. I hadn't been expecting her for days. Playable in advance? Okay, maybe easier to publish in Cambridge than Oxford, okay? Um, you can explore that a year. Pleasure. Um, but it has something. Uh, and again, it's the discontinuity that's poetic. It's the work that we do in the gaps to create original links and so surprising ideas. Most of this stuff, incidentally, is produced using uh, Markov chains, which uh, is a kind of... Um, stochastic algorithm that spits out a bunch of random variables, you know, and, uh, and it can use, generate a bunch of uh, fake texts from a s series of, uh, of real texts. It's behind things like the, the uh, postmodern essay generator, um, which is, here's a really, I don't know if you've seen this. I shouldn't tell you this, but this fool's turn it in, because um, it doesn't pick up on it at all. Uh, it's if you're submitting your essays online. I really should have kept that to myself. Um, <laughs> But there you go, I won't quote from that. But uh, there's also uh, the Surrealist Compliment Generator. There's a nice one here. You mutter such objects of equine delight that the mind's ability to sow slices of modern ivory becomes tamed with visions of Tamils in Constantinople. <laughs> um, basically, these have enough coherence, local coherence, to fool most search engine rankings and spam filters, including the spam filter in your temporal lobes, and enough local discontinuity to be found uh, uh, poetic you know, if you've a mind to. Uh, but as I've said, poetry is as much read in by the reader as written out by the poet. And reading in requires a gap, some slippage in which to do so. The presence of that gap alone is often taken as a cue for the reader to make poetry of something. So the aim of the poem isn't to communicate clearly, but it's to communicate ambiguous and original signs clearly. Uh, as signs have to have enough salience, emptiness, connotative blur around them, to allow the reader the, the latitude to adapt them to their own reading and make them their own, but not so much that they can make anything of them, which isn't a game worth playing. Um, however, clear ambiguity, I think, is less a paradox than a balancing act. Uh, although one made more difficult by the stylistic ticks of our late modernist style, um, which has made a, a virtue and sometimes a fetish of ellipsis, uh, and only really increased the potential for slippage between the poet's intention and the reader's interpretation. Uh, and contemporary readers, I think, are far too tolerant of the, the, the many errors of uh, omission that poets commit in the name of this style. Uh, nonetheless, without this gap, as I say, between giving and receiving, there can be no poetry at all. Uh, the thing can't be made the reader's own. Um, and one should, of course, march in the street for the right 
for the readers to make anything they want of your poem, however stupid or misguided or, in, or uh, brilliant or insightful, uh, because it's no longer your poem. Um, the most stark example I have of this, you know, in terms of my own personal experience, uh, um, was that a couple came up to me after a reading uh, and the lady said she wanted to thank me for a poem that she'd written, uh, which had meant a lot to the, the, the couple when they'd been courting. Uh, and um, I said, that's a, that's a pleasure. And what, what poem was it, by the way? And she said, no, it's fine. I really don't want to say. I just wanted to thank you. And I sort of persisted in this, you know. Um, uh, and I asked her again. She said, no, it's fine. I'd really, uh, you know, I'd, I'd rather not say. Just wanted to thank you. You know, and was backing away at this point, you know. And of course I wouldn't let it go. I said, no, go on, tell me. And she snapped back at me and she said, it's none of your business. <laughs> um, it took me a while to realise it was a kind of a compliment, I suppose, in a way, because that's, that's what you want. Um, here is a, 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 a diagram that is clearly no fun at all, okay? This is a, a recent version of the kind of communication model that uh, um, was developed by Carl Bullard and, uh, and Jacobson um, originally, and the kind that most people work with these days. Uh, without getting into the technicalities, uh, the main difference in the case of poetry is that unlike jazz, uh, algebra, pig Latin, um, poetry's gappy communication means that the code that carries its symbols and signs can change from poem to poem. So the channel, the wee box in the middle there, can switch. And within that channel, there's often a very poor signal-to-noise ratio. Uh, unlike algebra, it's not just a matter of understanding a bunch of conventions. The reader has to be alert uh, to not just the signs, but alert enough to learn a new code when it's proposed, uh, when it's, uh, so that the new channel can be tuned into it. Um, to cut to the chase, really, if this model described poetry, the words incompetence and uh, interference, which you see sort of above the box in the middle, would be much, much bigger. Um, I can simplify the terms. Codal incompetence is not understanding stuff. Uh, you don't enjoy bar talk uh, because you're trying to listen to him like you listen to Mozart. You don't enjoy, uh, or you're trying to read Wallace Stevens as you would Keats. Uh, chordal interference is not liking stuff. Um, you know exactly what, what death metal or abstract impressionism or postmodern verse are, but you'd just rather they were doing something different. Uh, a further delicious complication, however, is that an unstable chord means that the reader will often muddle incompetence and, uh, and interference. So <laughs> they think they don't get stuff when they just don't like it, and they don't like stuff when they just don't get it. Worrying about not getting it, or, or uh, a totally misplaced confidence that you do get it, leads to something like a paranoid state. Uh, and I have a simpler diagram of that. There we go. Um, I don't really mean uh, this kind of paranoid. Uh, but this next guy is, in my experience, more often the expression of the contemporary poetry reader, worried they don't have the code or the means to make sense of the detail that it carries. Um, so that's the nearest to the kind of sweaty, terrified individual that I associate with the, the, the poetry reader. Um, not only does the poet not know what they've received, the reader's none too sure uh, either. Um, I have one piece of advice that I think might help in terms of a, a composition of anyone writes poetry out there, uh, and I think if both sides honoured it, it would eliminate a lot of pointless confusion. 
Right? And it's something I've learned from editing, where I'm in the, the fortunate position of being able to ask really good boys what they meant. And sometimes the shortfall between what they think they're giving and what's actually being traded in the, on, on the page is remarkable. Um, I teach my, my, you know, and I'm as guilty as this as an ex-person, Lord knows. Um, I teach my students a really simple rule, which is uh, that the reader always has the right to take the shortest route to literal sense whatever that happens to be, unless the poem uh, indicates otherwise. Uh, it strikes me as this is the only thing standing between us and insanity, or the infinite profusion of signs. Um, the, these indications take the form mostly of deictic cue, which is to say that deictists in speech we tend to think of uh, as mostly citing a point of view in terms of temporal, spatial, and phenomenal uh, information. So once you know the, the when and the where and the who of the conversation that you're having, you, knew, you have the mental space in which you can place yourself and the action that it describes. Um, my own position is that diagnosis in literature has another additional component, which is one of literality. In our kind of living day-to-day, -day, we're aware of a broadly non-negotiable outer reality and a configurable inner imaginative reality, and these are, to all but the psychotic, uh, self-evidently distinct. In depicted reality, in literature, the distinction is maintained except uh, both the real and the uh, unreal have to be constructed carefully to avoid confusion. The reader is perfectly aware that the, uh, their disbelief is willfully suspended and the, the events in the poem will be reported by the text as a speaker would relate a real event. This is just mimesis, of course. However, this, uh, this means that the non-literal, the figurative, the imaginary must also be very carefully indicated. So between these, these four things, you shape a, a, a didactic space that, that, that works in literature. But very often, in my experience, the poet has forgotten to say, literally forgotten to say, that the poem uh, is a conversation between two elephants uh, after the Battle of Jutland, and they're both in a dinghy in the middle of the North Atlantic. Um, I, and that it's really about their abandonment issues or something. Uh, these things have been uh, omitted because they've been assumed to be self-evident. Uh, poetry is close in work, and this often involves a massive loss of perspective, hence my second war cry, you know, to young poets especially, which is anticipate the condition of publication. Um, if you're doing this properly, it should involve terrible uh, uh, shuddering, cold sweats, uh, weeping jacks, I think. Um, the prospect of uh, 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 nothing sharpens your perspective really more than the prospect of imminent public humiliation. Uh, and since publication is primarily an exercise in shame, um, this allows you the kind of editorial distance to put back what you'd foolishly uh, uh, omitted, those elephants basically. Uh, and you can tell a creative gap from a simple uh, lacuna. If you don't, the reader expects, uh, sorry, expends their energy in establishing really basic dumb stuff that you could have just told them. Um, uh, and we'll have no energy left for your weightier propositions. We do not want to use the poem, I would propose, as an excuse to have a conversation about bloody poetry. We want to use the poem as a way of introducing things to think about and to, you know, and to exchange. Um, I mentioned Billy Collins earlier, you know, uh, a, a, a poet who annoys poets uh, greatly because he outsells them all. And there's nothing worse than poetry than immense popularity. Uh, and he's damn for it. He wrote a poem called Workshop, which was written in the, in the voice of a poet conducting a poetry workshop uh, and confronted by a very bad poem. It's a, it's a clever poem because it's self-descriptive. It's just an account of, its, of itself, really. But it's also wincingly accurate in its description of the lost reader uh, and also in one's attempts not to offend the poet. This is just a wee bit. Um, 
from later in the thing. Uh, the other thing that throws me off, and maybe this is just me, is the way the scene keeps shifting around. First we're in this big aerodrome, and the speaker is inspecting a row of dirigibles, which makes me think, this could be a dream. Then he takes us into his garden, the part with the dahlias and the coiling hose, though that's nice, the coiling hose. But then I'm not sure where we're supposed to be. The rain and the mint green light, that makes us feel outdoors. But what about this wallpaper? <laughs> or is it a kind of indoor cemetery? There's, there's something about death going on here. In fact, I start to wonder if what we have here is really two poems, or three, or four, or possibly none. <laughs> The last bit we, we all think to ourselves, of course. Um, the lost poetry reader, denied their guided contexts, often behaves in a way that presents a little simulacrum of the kind of caudal incompetence they experienced in clinical psychosis. Um, the weird thing is that we can discuss it in exactly the same semiotic terms. Um, this wee analogy is a bit frivolous, uh, so please don't think I'm taking the subject of psychosis lightly. Um, in my line of work, you can't do that. Uh, poets get a lot of this sort of stuff. The doors of perception are very easy to fling open and very difficult to shut again. So, uh, <laughs> um, so while this taxonomy is a wee bit obscure, um, I think the nature of these semiotic pathologies will be, uh, uh, you know, oddly familiar to you. Uh, I borrowed it from a, a rather obscure paper by a guy called Stepan Davtian on sign malfunction in psychotic reality. Um, it was a very slack evening, and I remember the third season of Justified had just finished, so there, there was, uh, that's the only way I can explain it. But these um, states can basically arise through either incompetence or interference or one or both sides. It's a disease of degree, really. Uh, at its worst, the poet is essentially speaking in Klingon, uh, while the reader kind of nods in deep misunderstanding. Um, more often, though, the rules have not been made clear on one side, and another set of rules have been precipitately applied on the other. So we have one side playing drafts, and the other side playing chess. Um, you know, the ability of humans to kind of willfully maintain this kind of mutual uh, uh, misapprehension is a thing of wonder. I actually once had a, a ten-minute conversation with a mate of mine on the prelude, um, and we were speaking about his longers, we were speaking about his bright passages, but his turgid lines, his overblown rhetoric, uh, his lyric grandeur, and then he started whistling uh, a bit by way of uh, illustration. Um, I hadn't, if he hadn't done so, I think I would have left the conversation none the wiser that I was speaking about Wordsworth's prelude and he was speaking about Wagner's prelude. We're <laughs> <laughs> both perfectly happy with the whole exchange. Um, so uh, here's a wee, uh, this is a, an excerpt from a longer, uh, much longer uh, paper, but here's a little um, pathology of the lost reader. Um, a little bit of it anyway. Uh, one thing is cryptosemia, to read signs not apparent to others. Um, we often see this with readers who believe poets have hidden messages in their poems. Um, this is a kind of reader who's been taught in school often uh, that, that meaning is something that poets deliberately and sadistically withhold, uh, and that what you have to do at a poem is batter a confession out of it. Um, so, for example, you know a lot of, it's another permissive context really, a lot of numerological frenzy surrounding Shakespeare's science. Um, so one bright spark. Uh, has found a cryptogram in one of the sonnets I read that reveals that Kit Marlowe wrote this. Of course he did, you know. Uh, but I used identical methods to uncover another one, which was Paris Hilton wrote this. So it's, it's, you know. Also, I got I Killed Will backwards, which I thought was cool. Um, but this is, um, again, largely fueled and sanctioned by a permissive context. 
the real Elizabethan obsession with numerology, which is also licensed the kind of thing that Helen Vendler indulges in her theory of uh, key words in the sonnets. Uh, a theory that, you know, which, as far as I'm concerned, only exists in the vast brain of, of Helen Vendler. Um, you know, watching the godlike Vendler <laughs> analyse a bad poem, it's like watching a brain surgeon dissect a hamburger. I mean, it's just like it's, um, it's uh, unedifying and it makes me feel queasy. Um, but it is, I suppose, the classic pitfall of scholarly readings where a text, however bad, will be obliged to live up to the high expectations of the often superior intelligence uh, reading it. But I suppose there's an aphorism that you could drive, uh, derive from this, which would be something like, you know, if you read poetry uh, slowly and uh, carefully enough, you will find many things that are not there. Um, Another uh, uh, thing we could identify, I think, is parasemia, which is the perverse reading of signs through the invention of false context. Um, if what I call the thematic domain, that's basically what the poem is about, isn't well formed uh, and indicated, the reader will often just decide the poem is about something else entirely uh, and make every detail fit that thesis. Uh, often these projections are neurotic or sexual in nature, I've noticed, uh, and always revealing. I swear this is true. I, I once met somebody who was convinced that uh, Robert Frost stopping by woods in a snowy evening, uh, you know that poem? That uh, described the poet interfering with his pony. Um, you know, my little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near. He gives us harness bells a shake to ask if there's been some mistake, you know. The woods are lovely dark and deep. You can see how this would, uh, uh, would fit. Um, an excessively fond little poem of my own that I wrote a while back, written soppily to commemorate the occasion that my baby son started to smile for the first time. Um, I've got a wee bit of it here. Uh, Whatever the difference is, it all began the day we woke up face to face like lovers, and his four-day-old smile dawned on him again, possessed him till it would not fall or waver. It goes on. Um, it was once described by a Daily Mail journalist, uh, which again is an oxymoron you can pursue at your own reflective as as a, as a love poem from one gay man to another. <laughs> you know? Which, you know, when you think it, it's a really sweet interpretation. Um, uh, and again, in that parasemic context, you can see how certain phrases take a delightful turn. Certainly, uh, in that context, um, four-day-old smile seems to speak eloquently of the stamina of the... Uh, the <laughs> Not an impression I'm keen to discourage, you should say. Uh, hypersemia, the foregrounding of some signs at the expense of others, uh, otherwise known as strenuous overinterpretation. This often uh, arises through the unconscious desire to apply a specialism. <laughs> um, I've heard reviews where the critic has identified nothing but the influence of authors I have never read, uh, merely because they happen to be specialists in them. Um, It's often an error, I think, committed in an attempt to, to, to nail uh, what a poem really means as opposed to just means, and that really uh, is often the hallmark of a kind of essentialist. You know, poems, of course, don't really mean anything other than what we make of them, exactly as words, you know, as Wittgenstein said, uh, are, more, are no more or less than the way we use them. Um, poets more interested in the free play of meaning and paradox and tension or open-ended questions are, are especially badly served by this critical approach that just projects in what you want to see. Uh, I was going to look at an example. I've got time here, just about. Here's a wee poem of Muldoon's, beautiful little poem of Paul Muldoon's, uh, Ireland. 
The Volkswagen parked in a gap, but gently ticking over, you wonder if it's lovers and not men hurrying back across two fields and a river. Um, it's basically two ways of looking at the same image, the parked car with the engine still running and by extension a whole country. Uh, you do a double take with the image of the, uh, the Volkswagen. Uh, the last two lines are metonymic, I think, they're, they're evidential. They tell us what, that there's a job to be done and quickly at a distance from the car. There might have been some reconnaissance involved, a map involved, and the car ticking like a bomb maybe might suggest that whatever it was these men did, it was the opposite of a couple making love. Um, but uh, encouraged by the title, this is something I've encountered more than once, some folk have ex excitedly declared that the two fields in a river are uh, symbolic of Ireland, the Irish Sea, and the UK mainland, somehow, making the whole poem some kind of uh, allegory. And I think that's totally wrong, or at least a, a very unproductive reading. Um, the poem's about just two interpretations held in tension. It's a, it's a double take. Uh, and I think that such an allegorical reading uh, leaves the poem overwhelmed by merely one reading, where it's about two held in tension. And allegory is no fun, which is why it died out. Um, uh, Overinterpretation can take many forms, and readily incompetence can arise through stupidity, uh, through overweening confidence, and exhaustion. Um, to, uh, in terms of that exhaustion, I was judging a poetry competition once, uh, back in the day when nobody used sifters, and I just read 4,000 poems, you know, in like two days. Uh, and I couldn't find a winner, and I'd, I was completely page-blind, and I'd almost given up, and it was about three o'clock in the morning, and I came across a poem, it was called something like, um, To My Dog Benji, Who Died uh, Under a Land Rover, Aged Three Years. And there was a wee asterisk beside uh, Benji, and I looked at the bottom, and it said, Benji was a Cocker Spaniel. <laughs> at this point, I'm boiling up, you know, I just, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Say this is true. In the morning, I found it had written in the margin, uh, harrowing in its simplicity. Uh, <laughs> clear winner, you know. Uh, before I'd fallen into a coma at the desk, you know. So uh, we've got to watch. Um, Hypersemia is the diminished significance uh, of signs, which is underinterpretation. Um, one classic example would be uh, those many readers who take uh, Robert Frost's uh, The Road Not Taken as an inspirational tract about making life choices. It's really not about that at all. In China, actually, the poem is, is taught in schools as a political allegory for, uh, about turning away from the, the path of uh, Western capitalism. Um, but in the defense, Frost has made a trap to trip the unwary quite deliberately. Uh, yeah, he says, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. But nowhere, nowhere does he say that the difference was a good one. Um, so if you look at the title, the poem is about the path he did not take. To my ear, that makes that sigh at the end. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Uh, one, less one of wistful self-congratulation, as, as, as often heard, and knowing Frost, more likely one of exhaustion, uh, nihilistic indifference, you know, uh, maybe even bleak regret. Uh, uh, and finally, we might turn to asemia, which is... Um, the inability to understand any signs at all, which is my resting state at the moment, I think. Um, there we go, old Jezza. Um, but there, from Prin. Um, Prin's poetry is, as, as we know, notoriously discontinuous. It's only recently that I've really started to enjoy it. Um, and it's because I realised that it's not as hard as I thought. I, I, I used to call this stuff difficult. It's not, it's just bracing, I think. <laughs> 
Um, the fault was his uh, and mine. Uh, Prend, as, we, as you know, has been notoriously silent uh, on the subject of his own work, but has recently been a bit more forthcoming. There's an interesting essay of Prend's called Mental Years, it's a great title, um, which he wrote a couple of years back and said something rather useful, which was, I am rather frequently accused of having more or less altogether taken leave of discernible sense. In fact, I believe this accusation to be more or less true. <laughs> And not to me alarmingly so, because what for so long has seemed the arduous royal road into the domain of poetry, what does it mean, seems less and less an unavoidable, unavoidably necessary precondition for successful reading. There you have it. In short, if you give up trying to find paraphrasable meaning in print, you can give yourself over to the free play of sense and sound and uh, intertextual association. So that's just fine. At that point, I moved from a self-diagnosis of, of caudal incompetence, which made me feel stupid, to maybe caudal interference, where I could understand what was going on, just wasn't necessarily obliged to like it. Um, now, finally, I want to look at one uh, uh, possible palliative here. I'm particularly interested... Um, and I might get into this in the other lectures, I don't know yet, because I can't get, I can't, I'm aware of the extent to which I can get dull on the subject. Uh, but I'm interested in the way these errors of slippage are, are performed, uh, and by contrast, the, uh, the effect an emotionally sensitive and insightful performance can change your experience of the poem. When we seek to infuse our speech with a mood or an emotion that the words alone can't express, it's to music, it's to the patterning of sounds that we instinctively turn. Uh, in our spoken conversation, variations in pitch and in length, uh, amplitude and timbre of the vowel are responsible for most of what we convey of emotional tone. Uh, and much subtle sense-making and emphasis that the, the, the mere word sense of our language can't carry can be expressed in the international contour of, of the vowel sounds. This is why Daleks have trouble conveying irony. Um, uh, you know, and they always sound sarcastic, doesn't matter what they say, you know. Um, <laughs> I nearly told a joke there that I suddenly realised it was appropriate only for the pub, but anyway, I'll tell you um, So this is uh, also why a great deal of sense, on the other hand, can be made of a conversation that you hear through a hotel wall. You can't, you know, sort of, um, this, this, which acts as a low-pass filter, so you can't hear high consonant, but you do hear vowel sound, and you can tell the whole uh, uh, emotional course of the, of the conversation very often. Um, now, I want to look at just a, a, a few alternate performances of the first four lines of Sonnet 18 here. Um, and the first one uh, I'll look at is the way I heard an actor perform it. And that's the one in the middle, which was, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds, they shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Um, this, is, uh, this is what I call actor stress, uh, which is capable of reducing poetry to absolute nonsense. Um, most of us, when we... Actors can be wonderful readers of poetry, that's the first thing I say, but most of us, when we read a poem we don't immediately understand, will uh, use a monotonous delivery so we don't put the stress in the wrong place. So what we'll do is we'll actually de-inflect the poem, de-accent it completely, and leave it monotone. Uh, actors, in order to convey the impression they understand fully what they're talking about, what is their job, <laughs> will put the stress anywhere uh, in the sense whatsoever. 
um, so that the uh, that, that something is the impression is conveyed of the, their understanding. Um, but of course, this has reduced Shakespeare's words to total garbage, um, just by misemphasis. Um, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? He has every bloody intention of comparing it to a summer's day. There's, there's no way he's not going to do it. Um, so, so that's that. Uh, he's not in two minds about it. Um, they are more lovely and more temperate. Well, lovely and temperate in this context, of course, are not the news in this sentence, and it's news that gets accent. Um, they're not news either in relation to the beloved young man or the summer's day, and therefore they're unworthy of this foregrounding accent. It's a straight misreading. The accent, of course, should be on, probably on more, uh, and probably and. Lovely and temperate, you take a sort of D accent, because they're an already understood metonymic aspect of, of, of summer. Uh, the next one confused me a bit. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of me. I couldn't remember what was going on there until I reckon it was just an actively susceptibility to the word darling, you know, <laughs> and they couldn't resist it. Um, uh, of course, it should be rough winds do shake the darling buds of me. And you de-accent darling buds because its function is almost anaphoric. It's, it's, uh, it's just a repetition of summer posing as a metonym. It's already understood. Uh, and Summer's lease hath all too short a date. Uh, the delegation here of the nuclear stress automatically to the word date uh, is made because the line's contextually misunderstood. The sense, again, demands a stress on short to contrast the infinite length of his love's lease. Uh, and Summer's lease hath all too short a date. So shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds to shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. I was hamming it up a bit, you know. Um, so, to finish up, really, uh, uh, just if I've got time, just about cram this bit in. Um, to grossly oversimplify, your brain does words and rules. When you learn a, a, a word, it gets stored in your brain as an item, it gets memorised with its signature music its prosody, its rhythm, and its international shape. So not only do you know a banana as a curvy yellow fruit, you also know how to say banana and not banana. Um, it goes in the same place. The same is true of the phrasing, you know, the lexicalized phrase. Once a phrase becomes stock, you know, a collocation, an idiom, or a cliche, it gets stored like a word uh, and its music freezes. That means that while there are a thousand ways to say close the door, close the door, you know, close the door, etc. Because um, you're still processing processing that along the syntax, along the syntax, there's just one way of saying, go figure, go figure, you know, go figure. Um, the process really forges a deep connection between uh, continuous international contour and consolidated sense. Um, there's an argument for rereading a poem until you understand, your understanding it is kind of fully sophisticated and your performance of that, that rich sense is memorised along with the words of the poem itself. In other words, rereading fixes the poem's music in a manner similar to the storage of prosodic pattern in a word or the lexicalised phrasing. Um, most of our speech, uh, I, I realised to my horror the other day, really consists of the kind of somnambulant parsing of stock phrases that we can process at the level of phrase. We're zombies for the most part, I think. Um, and this is often indicated by the high degree of de-accent, which is the phonological equivalent of metonymy, where you can skip or render inaudible whatever we suspect to be already known to who we're speaking to. It saves on CPU, basically, and it's a beautiful human courtesy. 
Um, contrast that, of course, with what's known as lecturer's accent, the one I'm trying to use just now, where every single thing I'm telling you is important. Uh, and poetry, whose originality and unfamiliarity is often marked and assisted by a heavily accented prosody, where everything is promoted to the level of uh, uh, cognitive salience, so you're aware of it, because it's new, it's urgent, it's important. The result is a row of strong vowels with a lot of potential for expression, or if you like, original melody. Uh, and I'll finish with an attempt to show you what I mean by this. There's a rather odd psychological um, effect known as the speech-to-song illusion. Well, it's a good paper on this by Diana Deutsch uh, about four years ago, and it works as follows. Uh, a, a recording of a piece of conversational speech is played to the listener. Um, the, uh, a random sentence or phrase within that is then isolated. Uh, and played back to the listener maybe 10 or 12 times over. The effect of this is to bend down the contour of that particular uh, uh, phrase as a memorised series of tones. And when the full passage is played back to the listener and the repeated phrase is heard again, um, the speaker ap appears to be clearly singing the phrase. Um, so let's just see if I can get this to come off. When the full passage is played back to the listener, and the repeated phrase is heard again. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. Let's see if it works. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. The speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. When the full passage is played back to the listener and the repeated phrase is heard again, the speaker appears to be clearly singing the phrase. Let's see if it works. Sort of. <laughs> so you get the idea. Um, a poem memorised in such a way will be processed in part at least as a piece of music. Uh, with all music's ability to unify and make seamless what is discontinuous, and so make the poem's strangest ideas physically coherent. The poem is then consolidated, if you like, as one big word. Uh, and this is why I'd love to see a return to the practice of learning poems by heart. Not only does this turn the poem into a, you know, a gift that can be kept forever, uh, but learning the song of the poem provides a kind of carrier wave, a clear channel, in which those strange symbols can write. Uh, it brings us closer to the voice in which the song originated. Uh, I don't think we should overcomplicate things here. A poem is just two monkeys uh, talking to each other and getting close. Um, as, as, as Sally mentioned, I spent a long time working on a version of uh, Rilke's uh, De Sinetta and Orpheus. Uh, and Rilke thought of Orpheus, the singing god, as a man who was best resigned to the paradoxical human condition of ghosthood. Uh, unusually for mammals, you will have noticed, we have foreknowledge of our own deaths, so uh, in the sense of both here and not here. Orpheus had found this perfect balance between life and death, eternity and the living present by singing over the gap and inhabiting both realms at once. But I think that gap is also between self and other, between giver and receiver. Um, we may not ever sing from exactly the same hymn sheet, but I think we can learn to harmonise. Uh, and then I believe we can better trust that the strange contraband of poetry has been safely delivered. That's enough lecturing.
Well, thank you, John. That was absolutely a wonderful lecture. I, I'm, I'm I worry now as a, as a teacher, so what have I done in classes and imposing these forms of reading? And I'm sure every student is also, oh heavens, did I break the rules? And <laughs> so we will all sit with our personal embarrassments as we, um, Don has very kindly um, offered to take questions. I enjoyed that hugely, and I'm afraid what I'm going to ask probably sounds a bit flat-footed, but I'm reminded of an old musician's anecdote about keyboard harmony classes, where some joker puts into the exercise a fragment of bark, and of course gets red lines underneath and marked down. And I'm just wondering whether poets themselves don't break all these rules. I'm thinking particularly of Anurag Mata, for example, who was a most obsessive cryptocephic reader and imposer of those meaning non-texts. I mean, she said about Pushkin that Pushkin had his own type of cryptography, and that's the way she read him, and this is clearly partly from a sort of totalitarian context in a culture that she, she herself perceived as totalitarian, and a sort of defensive mechanism of encoding meanings. And I just wondered what the right way to read um, something like the poem about a hero is, where she's adding layer after layer of meaning at the end of her life. And one school of thought is that she'd lost it a bit and had become a bit and Golga and was just rewriting her own self. And another school of thought is obviously that this is a creative process and it's about adding things. And I mean, sort of coming a bit from my own sort of parochial area, but I just sort of thought that maybe there are literary cultures which treat it in different ways. Yeah, I think it's inevitable. I mean, I think, again, you know, it's just, I think that the point to come back to is that the text has no intrinsicality, you know, and, but we should allow it to be in flight, you know, and change according to rereading or according to what we know uh, about its origins. Um, you know, and, and I believe, you know, as I think we all do now and going heavily against, you know, those now mother's milk received ideas from new criticism about focusing on just a close reading of the text. So, uh, you know, so I do think that your reading can be heavily qualified by intentional and effective forces, you know. Um, and uh, the only thing I would make a claim for, uh, you know, is that, that readings are sensitive and not stupid and, are, you know, and, and, well, and well informed. But, you know, within that, there's a, there's a huge scope. Um, it's really quite remarkable, especially working in stuff in versioning and translation, uh, the extent to which a, a poem changes when you don't have the cultural context for it, it's, you know, or, or the way that it will change when you suddenly have the biographical context for it. You know? But I don't think we should resist our information you know, so that it qualifies a reading of the poem. Big deal. I think it just makes it a richer experience. You know? um, so that was a lousy answer to a brilliant question, but I don't think there's, there's much more to it than that. Really. Um, that's the question about surrealism. Please. <laughs> Which attempts to break all the codes. Um, and I wonder how, given your division between the incompetence and the, the interference, how you could actually create codes that you would be, need to adhere to in reading, if that makes sense. Uh, if, you, if you just have something like a, a serial piece of... A serial text. Well, the interesting thing is all attempts fail, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, it's just, to, the, I mean, the private language maybe exists theoretically, but as soon as things hit the air, they form signs, you know, and they always have context, you know, and we always, even if there's not one there, I think they're probably imprinted with one on the author's side. Um, uh, humans are incapable of generating stuff randomly. Um, and uh, even that stuff that is generated by algorithm, we immediately sort of, uh, you know, confer meaning. So I, th I don't think it could be done really. Um, 
But I mean, I think that this surrealism is, is, is revealing far more for what it says about the reader than what it does about the author, you know. Um, but again, I don't personally find it a game worth playing, you know. Uh, if a text is capable of a thousand different responses, then just let's read the phone book or just, you know, throw some alphabetic spaghetti at the wall and just like, and talk about that instead, really, you know. Um, thank you very much. And you focus quite a lot on the uh, response from the reader. I was just uh, thinking about. Um, from the poet's point of view, if they have a very sort of intentionally polysemous uh, uh, aspect to their work, whether the more and more uh, possible interpretations or meanings there are, I'm thinking of Zukowski, who possibly has done this more explicitly, maybe Salan implicitly, or even Prin, whether the more and more polysemous it is, it kind of can break through the sound barrier, if you know what I mean, from one of the phrase. And even though uh, it's very sort of open to interpretation, it can create something, I don't know, it has a framework as a conveyor of meaning, and yet it's just so, you know, it's broken through into another dimension. Well, I don't really understand that. I mean, it's just like, you know, I, I know what you're saying, but I think there's a point at which polysemy becomes nonsense, you know, and I think for me it's about narrowing the, you know, the, the number of uh, different available interpretations to a reasonable number in order to make the game worth playing. But it, it's a, such a temperamental thing, and it depends what kinds of games we enjoy, and I think we're all different in that regard, you know. I used to be much more hardline in this stuff, and I really don't care at all now. I think it's, you know, it's just, that we, you know, lots of different things work for different people. Um, <laughs> But, you know, but sometimes things get get lost when you don't have the code. You talk about Sealand, you know, and it's just, and we know, I know from talking to German friends, it's a very different experience, uh, you know, and far less, uh, uh, there's far less polysemy in the German than, than there is in the English once you have the nuance, you know, and the cultural gesture, uh, and you can read that. So it's, uh, yeah, I don't know really. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't really know what you... Uh, I think you do, one thing that happens is that once you can rule out meaning in the f sense of paraphrasable sense, as Prince seems to have done, you can focus on other aspects of the poem that are absolutely pleasurable in themselves. You know, and that's not just things like sound. It's also things like illusion and, uh, uh, you know, um, intertextual connections. So there's, the, you know, but um, I like meaning. Call me old school. <laughs> I like knowing what stuff means. Yeah. Um, they're different games, but you know, it's fine. Uh, I liked your story about the um, Wordsworth Prelude and the Tristan Prelude, and um, the fact you might have gone away thinking one thing until jumped around. Don't you think that there's potential there in, in thinking that you might have gone away with you know, a really interesting thought, having sustained the, this apprehension, and that you are trying to put some fairly tight boundaries around um, interpretation. <laughs> It's definitely true that, you know, I would say that, you know, sort of, I hope that came across, that this, that this uh, area of slippage needn't be an abyss in which we stumble. I mean, I think it's a creative gap, you know, in which the signs of the poem, that, that you know, that are partly polysemous, you know, sort of, uh, uh, can be, you know, made relevant to your own life experience because we're allowed that slippage of interpretation. That's fine. Uh, and, you know, sometimes error can be creative, as you say, but the, but the prospect of, of uh, me having one conversation and someone else having an entirely different conversation and us both go, going away oblivious, it makes me infinitely sad and feel terribly lonely. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, we might as well be dead. Um, so. 
mean, they face a much lighter on company. You know, that's what I like about Prime is more on company. I think you know, it's just like because I don't feel I feel entirely alone. But that's okay. You don't want to know it. But given that you're a musician as well, do you think that I mean the, the condition that you suggest of going away and having had quite different experiences is one that happens, I think, quite regularly in, in musical circumstances where performers think they've done one thing and audiences think they've heard something quite different. I mean, that, that, the, the chance that you might go away having with really quite different senses of what had gone on, why, why is that so sad? I, well, I don't think that's what happens in music at all. I think what happens in music is actually, there's, in some way, there's a, there's a purer exchange. And, a, and my suspicion is there's not that much that much discrepancy in their experiences as you might think. I mean, I think music has, you know, seems to have this remarkable trick of mapping its you know, sort of rather discarnate medium onto the realm of human emotion in a way in which we can trade signs. We don't really, I might actually do a lecture on this, you know. I am going to do that. Um, so uh, I, I don't think that there, there's as much, just because a, a sign that's traded uh, is intersemiotic, which is to say that it can't immediately be articulated, doesn't mean there's no currency involved. Um, so I don't accept that about music, you know. I think it actually trades its signs uh, with uh, much less slippage than language does, personally. We'll never know. This is the great thing <laughs> with music. Well, I think it's one of the interesting things about the, these gatherings that we bring together all disciplines. Because um, your Kokuta uh, is a um, professor of music who works on the psychology of people um, so responding to music. So I'm, I'm glad I didn't know that. Perfect right. dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> but um, these dialogues will continue um, on. Um, Thursday and then Tuesday and Thursday next week as well. So we look forward very much to um, future discussions. So thank you, Don, for a wonderfully both amusing and challenging talk. We look forward to the next.